0: Please join me for the scripture reading. Today's passage is from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison truly i say to you you will never get out until you have paid the last penny the word of the lord
1: thank you sohi so this morning we are in our fourth message in a series on the sermon on the mount called flourish the sermon on the mount is Jesus' most well-known sermon and In essence, it's a summary of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We saw, as we looked at the Beatitudes, Jesus, in this sermon, he opens it up by inviting us in to a life of blessing, of flourishing. Only this life of flourishing and blessing is completely upside down from what we would expect. It's completely paradoxical. And then we saw as Jesus moves on from the Beatitudes, that this sermon is a call not to live for just our own flourishing, but to be people who live for the flourishing of others, to be salt and to be light in the world. And then last week, we saw how Jesus was very clear. He said, what I'm saying here, my sermon is not a contradiction of anything that God has said previously. Instead, it is a recovery. It is a filling up. It is a fulfilling of the intended purpose of the entire Bible, that human beings might flourish under God's loving and good rule. And so we come to our fourth message today. Today we begin to look at Jesus' very practical teaching. This is the first of six contrasts that Jesus will move through. He's going to talk about marriage and lust and honesty and revenge, and each time he does that, he introduces and he says, you have heard it said to you, but I say to you. We're going to see that happen six different times. When Jesus is saying that, it's important that we see that he isn't saying, you have read it. He doesn't say, you have seen that it was written. He says, you have heard it said. In other words, Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the common interpretation, the common understanding of God's law and God's word and what it means to obey it. And Jesus begins this six-part section of his sermon on the very practical everyday realities that we all face by talking about anger. He talks about anger first. And as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, why does he pick Anger first, not lust or revenge or love of enemies. He talks about anger. Well, in Jesus' day, I thought there, there was a lot of anger. There was anger in large part because there were a lot of divisions. There was the Roman occupation over all of Israel, and people were angry about that. There were the religiously strict Jewish, Jewish leaders versus the more lax Jewish people and leaders. There were the scribes versus the Pharisees. There were the revolutionary zealots versus the Sadducees, a group of people who were participating in the Roman political system. They were seen as sellouts. And there were more divisions than that. So with all those divisions, there was also a lot of anger, a lot of suspicion, a lot of frustration, a lot of rage, and even fury. So what about our day? Would you say that we live in an angry time? Anger is is always an issue, but some would argue and some are observing that, especially in the last few years, anger has become a major problem for our culture. There was an article in the BBC online, so the the British are commenting on what they're seeing happen in our country, and the, the article was called, Why Are Americans So Angry?, And it reported about 70% of Americans are angry about how things are going in our country. Another article, NBC News, did a a little highlight and survey. They called it American Rage. And so they asked a few questions. One of these questions was, how often do you hear or read something in the news that makes you angry? Maybe you can answer that question. 31% said a few times a day, 37% said once a day, and 20% said once a week. So you add all that up, that means two out of every three people that you encounter on a daily basis is angry. And maybe you are one of those people. On top of this, some would say Christians are some of the angriest people in all of our society. Christians get really angry at Christmas when somebody says, Happy Holidays. It's Merry Christmas! Christians get angry when our moral views are not represented in laws. Worst of all, people observe Christians getting most angry with each other and having all sorts of divisions and conflicts. Fair or not, this is the perception. In my reading this week, I came across a funny story of a guy who was a part of a small group of people, and they were talking about the issue of anger. And he said, with a straight face, I am a Christian. I do not get angry. And then the whole group starts erupting in laughter, and he got really angry at everybody for laughing at him. (laughs) It's a funny story, but for Jesus, when it comes to anger, he's saying, this is a serious issue. For everyone, this is a serious issue for Christians. This is the number one on my list of things that I want to talk to you about first. Why? Well, as I will be unpacking this morning, Jesus clearly believes that one of the greatest threats to our own flourishing, one of the greatest threats to us being people who bring flourishing to other people, is the issue of our anger. We should take it as seriously as murder. It can be just as destructive to ourselves and to the other people in our lives. So we're going to look at three things this morning as we walk through this passage. Jesus helps us know the symptoms of our anger. He helps us feel the urgency of addressing our anger. And thirdly, he charts a path forward for us in dealing with our anger. So let's first Look at the symptoms. Jesus is kind of diagnosing our anger here and giving us the symptoms to look for. It's something that we all have. It's something that we all address. So we need to know what the symptoms are of this unaddressed anger. First symptom I'll call minimize. The first symptom is when we say anger is not that big of a problem for me. That's a sign that we have unaddressed anger. Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. He's saying, you've been taught, just don't murder, and you're good. That's Jesus' first example of what happens when you create fences around the Bible, fences around God's word, fences around his law. These commands end up distancing you from the very purpose of those commands and the, the reason why God gave them in the first place, which is, loving God and loving people. And you're left when you create fences around the Bible with a very religious and external approach to your faith. You come up with ways to manage sin and avoid sin. You can just check it off your list and say, I'm not a murderer, so I can relax when it comes to that part of God's Word. And Jesus is saying here, you think if you don't murder that you are obeying God's Word. How far indeed are you from the heart of God? how far you are indeed from the flourishing life. The command not to murder, Jesus is saying, is not just about taking someone's physical life, but about protecting, about guarding the emotional, relational, spiritual, and psychological lives of our neighbors, especially the people closest to us. It's in our reflection quotes The Apostle John in 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The point, anger, is not a minor issue. It's a matter of life and death. Jesus says, obedience asks, What can I do to promote the flourishing and the good of my neighbor, the people closest to me? in my life. And his first answer is, if you want to do that, you must first address your anger. That's symptom one. We tend to minimize it. Symptom two is our defense. We defend. When we are angry, we say, maybe it's not a minor thing, but when I am angry, I have a right to be angry. Jesus doesn't say here, never be angry. That would actually be impossible. And even biblically inconsistent. Anger is not always sinful. In fact, sometimes it is wrong not to be angry. When Jesus says everyone who is angry here, the the way the language works, this is the present participle to get Greek and technical for a little bit, but that means everyone who is holding on to anger in an ongoing way, everybody who is carrying it around, everyone who is nursing a grudge. In the Bible, we could say there are at least two types of, of anger, Two major categories of anger. Jesus was angry sometimes. He was turning over tables. He even called the Pharisees fools. Throughout the Bible, we learn God can be angry. His wrath, his passionate anger is directed against everything that stands in the way of his loving purposes for us and for his creation. And so the two categories of anger, we could say there's constructive anger and there is destructive anger. Constructive anger always leads to constructive action in light of God's desires and God's reputation. Constructive anger says, this is not what God wants in me, in others, in this relationship, in this community, or in the world. And so, in those situations, anger is a legitimate response, and often the appropriate response. Martin Luther King once said, if I wish to compose or write or pray or preach well, I must be angry, so my blood is stirred and my understanding is sharpened. And so he was saying, when I need to act on injustice, anger fuels me into action. It sharpens my mind, and it moves me to do something about it. It moves us to act for justice and reconciliation but there's also destructive anger. Destructive anger leads to destructive action or even destructive inaction out of my desires and my reputation. Destructive anger happens when something or someone stands in the way of what we think we need, desire, or deserve. And when that happens, then people just become obstacles that stand in the way, obstacles that need to be removed. The problem is, when it comes to constructive anger and destructive anger, is that we're very quick to justify ourselves and say, my anger is the justified kind, is the constructive kind. When in fact, as we read earlier in the service, James 1 says, you need to be very quick to listen, very slow to anger, even constructive anger. And slow to speak, because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So a question we can ask ourselves is, when do we feel that we have the the right to be angry? When do you most feel that? Southern California. So we have to bring up the issue of traffic, right? When we are in traffic, when we are on the freeway, we say to ourselves, I deserve a traffic-free world because my schedule is so important And my agenda and my goals are ultimate. So if I did have a blaster attached to my car, I would be tempted to use it. I would be tempted to use it to blast my way through the obstacles of other people. Maybe at work, we think, I just want other people to help me get done what I need to get done. And if not, just stay out of the way. If anyone damages my reputation or my performance at work, they are obstacles that need to be removed. A lot of us have thought, I'm a pretty calm person, we're pretty chill, we're pretty relaxed people, and then we get married, and then we have kids. And you go, where did all this come from? All this anger, it must be these other people that are in my life. And as parents, a lot of times, When we're angry with our children, it's not out of a passion for God's desires for them, about whom He has made them to be or called them to be. It's about our desires for them and who we want them to be. And so we actually treat them as obstacles toward what we would hope they would become. And in our marriages, when we feel like our spouse is not meeting our desires or expectations, we often become very passionate. I deserve someone. I deserve someone who will meet my desires. I have a right. And in most instances, when we're in that place, it doesn't lead to anything constructive. So we minimize, we defend, and Jesus brings up a third symptom of unaddressed anger, our words. The words we attach to people. In verse 22, he says, whoever insults or says raka to his brother and whoever says you fool are as deserving of judgment as a murderer. So raka, what is it? It sounds bad. If you heard somebody calling you raka, you would not say, oh, that person is is paying me a nice compliment. And it means basically an insult to somebody's intelligence, like an idiot. Fool is maybe taking it to the next level. Not just insulting somebody's intelligence, but going after their character and saying they're a worthless person. Now, these insults include those that we say out loud, but I think we also have to include those that we say even louder in our minds that don't come out of our mouths, so we're not off the hook. We have the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may, you know, can never hurt me. But we all know that's a lie. The words that people attach to us, the words that we attach to ourselves, those shape us, those define us and can do great damage to us. Insults do destroy. They kill a person's spirit, a person's soul, which you could say is even more valuable and precious than our bodies. Application. In our technological age, with email and social media, this is even more challenging and I think even more important. In Jesus' day, if you wanted to send an insult to somebody and send them a message, most of the time you had to do that in person. You had to stand there face to face with that person and deliver "Raka" or whatever it is that you were going to say. Now we have all sorts of means of insulting people through social media, through email, etc. We can do great damage. We can do permanent damage to another person by what we post, by what we share, and by what we send them. And so a question for us to ask, before we hit send, before we post, before we tweet, am I building life? Am I enlarging somebody's spirit and soul? Or am I taking it? Am I diminishing a soul? In the gospel, what words does God attach to us? Never raka, never fool. God says, you are loved, you are chosen, you are son, you are daughter. In you, I am well pleased. Those are the words we want to attach to the people God brings into our lives. Those are the symptoms, minimizing, defending, and our words. Jesus, he diagnoses our anger by showing us those symptoms, but he also wants us to see not only that it's something that we need to deal with, that we all have, that we all need to address, but that there is an urgency to addressing it. It's not something where we can say, I will get to that tomorrow. Unaddressed anger, Jesus says, always carries a cost. He presses home to us the urgency of not addressing anger by showing us how dangerous and how costly it is. There's a cheesy saying, but it's memorable and true. Anger is one letter away from danger. This is what Jesus is talking about. In verse 21, he says, Those who are guilty of murder face a trial. They're going to be guilty in a trial, there's going to be judgment, and they're going to have to pay the penalty. In a similar fashion, he says, those who are guilty of unaddressed anger are liable to the judgment, are liable to the council. And then he says, to Gehenna, or the hell of fire, which was a burning trash heap outside of the city of Jerusalem. And that's intense. Jesus is saying that the cost and the price of unaddressed anger is the same as murder. Because unaddressed anger is destructive, it kills human flourishing in us and in other people. And so it's urgent that we address it in the right way. Jesus also says, unaddressed anger always takes precedence. And you might ask, precedence over what? And Jesus' answer is precedence over everything, no matter what. In verse 21, he says, if you are at the altar in Jerusalem and you are Remembering there at the altar that your brother has something against you, drop it, go be reconciled first to your brother, and then come back. When Jesus says, when you remember that your brother has something against you, the original word there is just a two-letter word, T, T, or T, just the smallest little thing. Even if it's minor, even if you think it's minor, Jesus says, stop, stop and go be reconciled first. We should deal with unaddressed anger as soon as possible, even if we are just about to start the most holy and the most important thing in the world. Now, the people Jesus was talking to were in Galilee, about 80 miles away from Jerusalem. So they were thinking, if I'm in Jerusalem, I've made the journey there in order to worship, and I'm there at the altar, and that's when God prompts me, and I I remember there's unaddressed conflict. There's something going on in my life. Jesus says, Turn around 80 miles back. It's like if we work in LA and we have our community group in Orange County. Something happened at work. There was a conflict. There were words exchanged. We get into the driveway. We're there for community group. And we get a text from our coworker and they say something that indicates there's still an issue. I'm still at the office. And what you said wasn't right. Jesus says, get back in the car, get back into traffic, and first be reconciled. Unaddressed anger always carries a cost. It always takes precedence, and it always escalates conflict. Jesus says, come to terms quickly. Before you get to court, settle it. Jesus is not here giving us legal advice. He's giving us an illustration. If you hold on to anger and grudges... And resentment, it will always turn out worse in the end as opposed to you dealing with it immediately, right there. Address it quickly with urgency. One way for us to think about the urgency of anger is to think of anger as a light on our emotional dashboard. Just like we have a check engine light On our cars, that lights up and says something's not right. You need to pay attention to something. You need to dig into this. Anger is like that check engine light. We just had to get rid of our old van, rest in peace, Dodge Caravan, and it had the check engine light on that came on. And when it first came on, we were like, let's just ignore that. I don't want to know what's going on. We've had too many issues with this car. Let's just keep driving. Finally, we're like, all right, fine. Let's figure out what this this light is all about. So we take it in and it turned out that the whole transmission needed to be replaced. And my first question was, well, what happens if we don't replace it? That's what I asked the mechanic. He's like, well, if you go on a trip like longer than 60 miles, all of a sudden, you'll have no engine and things will break. They said, okay, that's pretty serious. I probably shouldn't ignore that. And that's when we decided to get rid of that car. The point of sharing that illustration is this. If you just let the light stay on and try to ignore it, something will break and it will end up costing you more in the end if you don't address it immediately. So when the anger light comes on, Jesus says, feel the urgency. Address it now. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, there's another reason why addressing our anger is so urgent. Because if we don't, we can miss the opportunity that our anger gives us to bring flourishing into the lives of other people. Let me share a quote from a book called Feel by Matthew Elliot. He says this, When we get angry at personal offenses against us, we lose a chance for others to be amazed at the forgiveness Christ offers. We lose the chance to suffer graciously, as our beloved Jesus did for us. Excuse me we lose a chance to demonstrate to others the power of God's grace. That is salt and light to the world around us. So when we see the anger light come on the emotional dashboard, we should see this is an opportunity. I can give somebody the amazing taste of forgiveness. I can suffer graciously as Jesus did. I can demonstrate grace here. That is a profound reversal of what we're often thinking when we have our angry moments. But they can be some of our best beatitude and salt and light moments, where we learn to choose being poor in spirit versus being demanding in spirit, where we learn, learn to choose mourning instead of just being mad, where we learn to choose meekness instead of aggression, peacemaking instead of conflict, and mercy instead of judgment and justice. Jesus says there's an urgency when it comes to anger. Don't miss those opportunities. So we've talked about symptoms. We've talked about the urgency. How do we address it? Most people can be divided into two categories when it comes to how do we handle our anger. Some of us are like crockpots and some are like microwaves. The crockpot just stuffs it, slow simmer. It just cooks at a very low heat. and just keeps cooking and simmering. Some of us are like microwaves. It's hot and fast. And it happens like that in an instant. It's zapped out. We vent it. There's the venters, and there are those who hold it all in. Either way, if left unaddressed, the food will burn. And Jesus says there's a third way to deal with our anger. And Jesus gives us that path forward. We should ask ourselves three questions when it comes to addressing our anger. The first question is this. Let's ask first the why question. Many scholars look at this passage, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, and see echoes of a prior story way back in Genesis with the first murder between Cain and Abel, the brothers. Cain's anger led to murder. In Genesis 4, 6, God came to Cain, and he asked Cain a question. He said, why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? God knew why Cain was angry, but he was giving him an opportunity. He was giving him a chance. He was inviting him to bring that anger to him where it was actually directed all along, and God can deal with that. God can handle that. When we ask the why question, often we realize that there's a lot going on underneath our anger. Many psychologists, counselors, therapists, they call anger a secondary emotion, meaning anger is an emotional response to another primary emotion that we're trying to cover up. C.S. Lewis, in a poem he wrote called Five Sonnets, he said, anger is the anesthetic of the mind. It gives us someone to blame. It fumes away our grief. Anger is like that. It can numb, it can push down difficult and negative emotions that we don't want to deal with. So we become angry. This is also important for us to remember when we are the object of someone else's anger. There's often more going on beneath the surface. For me to share personally, the first time I I ever went to a counselor or a therapist, I was very skeptical. I was like, okay, let's see what this is all about. Do I really need counseling? Do I really need therapy? And I had all these thoughts going through my head. And one of the first things that we did is the counselor said, Eric, I want you to go through this exercise that I have for you. This is like an emotional history exercise. On one side, you're going to write the key people in your life, your family, your friends, all the major people in your life. And on the top, you're going to write emotions, anger. You're going to write joy, anxiety, closeness, fear, happiness, abandonment, betrayal. And so you just look at these people and you say, here are some times I can remember feeling these emotions with regard to these people in my life. So I completed the worksheet, and I gave it back to him, and he looked at it, and he said, hmm, it looks like anger is popping up for almost everybody, but there's not really much else going on here with the other emotions. I was like, yeah, so? It's easy to be angry with people. I mean, that happens all the time. And what he helped me uncover and what he helped me see about myself is I was using anger so often throughout my life and throughout my story as this cover. There's a lot of other stuff going on. But it's easier to be angry. It's easier to blame. It's easier to be someone who's pointing the finger. So we need to ask that why question first. God tells us. That's a question to start with. Why are you so angry? The second step is we need to ask the gospel question. When we are angry, we lose perspective. We end up shrinking the world down to just us. And whatever the problem is, whatever is the thing that we want, whatever wrong we perceive has been done against us. And the story of why we are angry becomes the most important story of all. We need another story to invade us in those moments and capture our hearts. Even psychiatrists tell us that we use a very small portion of our brain when we're angry. We reduce our thinking down. We need something to expand and give us perspective. When we're angry, we think either I am the blameless hero or I am the innocent victim. We tell ourselves, I did nothing wrong. I am the victim. And we just repeat that story to ourselves. And in those moments, we need to remember the story of the gospel. We need to ask ourselves, how did God address his anger which was justified, which was fully righteous against us. How did God address his anger against us? And the answer is he didn't direct it towards us as we deserve. He didn't ignore it and set it aside. Instead, he took it upon himself. Jesus is the only blameless hero, and he was the innocent victim in our place in order that God's anger would be forever turned away from us. So however I have been wronged, it's nothing compared to how I have wronged God. Whatever it is I believe I deserve, it's nothing compared to the glory and the obedience that God deserves, and yet I have denied Him. However, I am being called to love and forgive another person. It's nothing compared to the infinite love and forgiveness I have in Jesus. And so that story invades. It gives us perspective. And it enables us to take the third step and ask the third question, which is, what can I do to work toward reconciliation? In our passage, the focus is not on what the other person who made me angry needs to do to work towards reconciliation. Jesus flips it all around. He even says, if you know that somebody's angry against you, even if it's something minor, you take the first step and work towards reconciliation. Take the first step and repent. Take the first step and open up the door for forgiveness. Take the first step toward healing in the relationship. God, he took the first step towards us. So may we be people who address our anger in light of the story of God's infinite love and forgiveness for us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a real issue for us. And I pray as we're listening to this, that if there are places in our lives where we are struggling, where we are angry, that you would reveal and expose these things, that you would help us feel the urgency about these things, and that you would reframe our anger and light of the gospel story. That our hearts would be melted again knowing that we have been forgiven much, so may we be people who love much. And may we learn to be reconcilers as you have reconciled us to yourself. Lord, move us outward in that ministry of reconciliation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.